Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. The crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Father, I pray that as we contemplate your authority and the various ways that people have reacted to it, that we would recognize the good source of all your power, that we would kneel down before it and acknowledge it, that we would seek to live it and to do it. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. I had a doctor's appointment recently. I went reluctantly, and they did a lot of tests on me, and then the doctor looked at all of the tests to kind of assess where I was at and give me sort of his diagnosis And when he was done interpreting all of the tests, he prescribed some medication for me, which I had to go and and get uh, the prescription filled, and I took the bottle home. And then I thought back over the test results, and I prescribed to myself not having to take the medicine and went on with my life. When you hear that, you may wonder, What medical education does Mark have that I wasn't aware of? Did he drop out of med school or something that he was able to assess his situation better than the doctor? And in fact, no, I have no medical training at all. I can barely do simple mathematics. I'm no expert in medicine, but I am an expert in Mark. I do know myself. And so in that moment, I overruled what the expert said, and I decided to go with what I thought about my circumstance. That's probably an anecdote that a lot of you who are doctors can relate to, but aren't happy to hear uh, coming from your pastor. It is a data point in a big problem that we have, what we might call a crisis of authority. And it's not just confined to the realm of medicine. If you talk to anyone who possesses any degree of expertise, one of the great frustrations they will confide in you is that even when I know what I'm talking about, people don't listen unless they want to. In fact, it's when I know, especially when I'm most right, that they seem most skeptical. If you look around you, you see this is the way so many of us operate. Like People listen to authority. People cite authority when they agree with authority but they go with their own interpretation when they don't. As a culture, we've come to believe that we have the ultimate authority to interpret our experiences, that there is no expert who knows better than we do who we are and what we need. And if there is no doctor, no professor who can dictate to us, there is certainly no deity who can do it. This crisis of authority is not a new crisis, and it's not even original to our generation. This is merely a symptom, an outworking of something that happens in our past, the so-called 
death of God. The hyper-individualistic skepticism that we see all around us towards authority is a symptom of our skepticism and rejection of the authority of God. We've decided as a people that our highest good is autonomy, is to be liberated from the authority that once oppressed us. And once autonomy is the goal, we find ourselves having to liberate ourselves from one authority after another. Authorities are only authoritative if we happen to concur with them, which is fine, which is not a problem, unless there actually is a God, unless the world actually does work in a certain way. It's not a problem unless some things actually are true and other things actually are false. If that's all the case, then our obsession with autonomy is a problem. It's a problem that is destroying us. And as we reflect on this brief text, the question we need to think about is the authority that here is in question. The way Christ's authority is questioned by the Pharisees. If you look at this text, you may notice there's some things that are missing. You might be wondering, wait a second, isn't Jesus supposed to say something about a house divided against itself cannot stand? Isn't he supposed to talk about binding the strong man so that he can plunder his house? Isn't he supposed to talk about the unpardonable sin? Well, yes, but not yet. In Matthew 12, a story very similar to this one is going to transpire in which Jesus will say all of those things. He will answer the ways that his authority is questioned, but we're going to save those answers until we get to them in Matthew 12. And this morning, what we're going to do is reflect on the problem. We're going to reflect on the skepticism, on the challenge, and the question of Christ's authority. Because there's two different reactions to the miracles that Jesus is performing, to these signs and wonders. Some people, here described as the crowd, see what Jesus is doing and they rejoice. They celebrate. But others, the Pharisees, see the exact same thing, but they interpret it in an entirely different way. They question it. That's the thing with signs. Jesus is doing signs. He's working miracles. But signs are always subject to interpretation. And the interpretation is what reveals the heart of the witness. You'll sometimes hear people lament the fact that we don't see miraculous signs all around us anymore. How much easier would it be to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ if every time you went to church, somebody got raised from the dead? If every time you went to church, blind people were given sight, people who couldn't walk were able to walk, people who were mute and couldn't speak were suddenly able to speak, you almost wouldn't need faith because you would see it happening before your very eyes. It's easy to envy those people for what they witnessed and to see our situation is so much harder Like, we have to believe in things that we haven't seen, that we haven't witnessed. If we were in their shoes, we wouldn't need to struggle so much to conjure up faith. It's a common complaint, but if you reflect on this passage, you can see the problem with it. We assume that everybody who witnessed the miracles experienced and interpreted them the same way. 
But actually, that's not the case. The Pharisees saw the exact same sign that the crowd did, but they didn't have faith. They didn't respond in joy. Even though they saw the miracle, they responded in a way that was antithetical to the response of the crowd. So one sign, one miracle, one experience, two diametrically opposed interpretations. And signs are always subject to interpretation. And it is the interpretation that reveals the commitments of the heart. We see in the interpretation where the Pharisees are coming from. Right? Our desires and our affections, our assumptions, all of these things shape the way we interpret our experiences. And so as we interpret, we reveal where our hearts are. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? When the rich man finds himself with Abraham in the afterlife, he begs Abraham. Like in a moment of self-forgetfulness, he asks that a witness can be sent to his brothers so that they won't end up where he has ended up. And Abraham says, basically, that's already happened. Those witnesses have already been sent out. Your brothers, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Abraham says, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The problem isn't the absence of signs. The problem isn't the absence of witnesses. It is how those things have been interpreted or misinterpreted. And the Pharisees show us why this is. Right? It's not what you experience that determines things. It's what you do with your experience, how you interpret it, what lens you put on it. It is possible for a person to witness the power of Christ in authority and to interpret it as the work of Satan, which is mind-boggling. But it brings us to a really important question. Whose interpretation of your experiences is right? Or who has the right to interpret your experience? Whose interpretation has authority? So as we reflect on this one miracle with two interpretations, it's fascinating to see the way the crowds rejoice. Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel, they say, which implies they recognize the messianic importance of these signs. Right? The signs are being done to show that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the king who was promised, and now he has come. When they say what he's doing is unprecedented, they're hinting at the fact this is different. This isn't just another prophet. This isn't just another holy man, another rabbi. Something about him is totally different. There's a hopefulness, an optimism in their response. The Pharisees, though, as they say, see exactly the thing, but they don't see it the same way. They see Jesus and can't deny the power. Like they recognize he has a power, but they attribute that power to the prince of darkness, the prince of the demons. You have control over demons because you serve the master of demons. That's where your power comes from. It's as if they're going back to Matthew 4, where Jesus was tempted by Satan, where Satan offered him dominion over things, if only he would serve Satan. They're acting as if Jesus had said yes to that. If Jesus had made that deal, where we went back and looked at Matthew 4, and we saw the victory 
of Jesus over Satan, where Jesus resists those temptations and Satan flees from him, they act as if Jesus had said, deal, give me power over the demons and I will serve you. They are literally demonizing him. Like we do it metaphorically all the time. The people we disagree with aren't just bad, they're demonic. Here they're doing that to Jesus quite literally. There is a life lesson for us in this. When the stakes are this high, when the question of authority is this important, there is no such thing as polite disagreement. There's no such thing as just agreeing to disagree. And it's not enough for people to interpret experience differently than God does in Scripture and to leave it there. To say, the Bible says this, but I say that, we'll just have to agree to disagree. Instead, we need to undermine the question to attack God's interpretation and his authority to make it. So we go after what Scripture says. We try to destroy it. In our own culture, we have a weird kind of uh, schizophrenic discourse, right? Where on the one hand, it is perfectly fine for you to believe whatever you want to believe as long as you don't force it on anyone else. But at the same time, it is not okay for you simply to agree to disagree on the way the culture interprets reality. At least not to disagree out loud. You're expected to act as if you agree and if you have scruples, to keep them to yourself. Now, why that inconsistency? Why do we see that, that hypocrisy at work around us, saying one thing but, but living another? I think it's for the same reason that the Pharisees have it. The Pharisees have to be really careful when they go after Jesus because the crowds are with him. And so they can't just come at him. They have to try to undermine the crowd's confidence in him. And I think a lot of times it's difficult in our culture to just go after Jesus because a lot of people, like the crowds then, are on Jesus' side, have a good impression of him. Even people who don't really believe in him think, well, he was a cool guy. And so it's not possible to directly challenge. So you have to kind of indirectly challenge. You have to find ways to make the argument go away. Now, I'm not saying that because I'm trying to scare you in some sort of uh, fearful culture war way. Uh, The reality is Christianity has always thrived in hostile cultures. You have no reason to be afraid. If this culture becomes more hostile to Christianity, don't worry about it. Hell cannot prevail against the church which Christ has instituted. But it is helpful to understand that there is an antithesis, there is a, an absolute difference between the way that God interprets your experience and the way your culture interprets your experience. That those two things are in conflict with one another, and that conflict, even though it's not always coherent or consistent, is just going to be a reality of your life. It's always going to be there. Facing that can help you be a resilient disciple instead of a fragile one. It can help you interpret signs of resistance, not as, as reasons to be fearful or angry, but, but yeah, Jesus said it would be like this, and like this, he has called me to faithfulness. That's the difference. Now, 
If the key isn't experience, but interpretation of experience, then we have to get the question of authority right. And this is something I think that would help us as we try to navigate our culture wars. But if you reflect on the two responses that we see here to Jesus' authority, you can see that at the heart of the conflict, it really is a question of authority. Like, who has the right to say what these signs actually mean? And I think that's often the question at the heart of a lot of our disagreements. They're not really disagreements over different experiences. That's not the problem. It's different interpretations of the same experience. It's how we explain what's happening. Oftentimes, people will argue or accuse you of denying their experience or even erasing that experience through disagreement. But that tends to obscure what's really happening. What's really happening is a difference of interpretation. Now, that obscuring also reveals an underlying assumption that we tend to make. It obscures the real issue, and it reveals an underlying assumption. So the real issue that it masks is that it's not experience that the Bible challenges. It is the interpretation of experience. And the assumption that is revealed is that the person with the experience is the only one who can rightly interpret it. That if I'm the one who experiences this, I'm the only one who can say what it means. Now, let me give you an example to try to explain what do I mean by by interpreting experience. I mentioned going to the doctor earlier. We have it pretty good when it comes to going to the doctor. If you lived in, let's say, the year A.D. 1400 and your stomach hurts and you went to the doctor, you might hear things a little different than what you would hear today. The doctor might examine you in 1400 and say, ah, I know why your stomach is hurting. It's because your humors are out of balance. And I have a cure for this. We will do some bloodletting. And if I drain enough of your blood, your humors will be back in balance. Your stomach will feel better. Now, if you go to the doctor today with a pain in your stomach, you might get different diagnoses depending on your test results. But I'm pretty sure that one of the ones you will not get is that your humors are out of balance. No doctor today is going to tell you that. Now, you might wonder why that is. What was the change exactly in human nature? Where we used to be governed by a balance of humors, and now we have some other way of operating. Well, nothing changed. The guy who went to the doctor with a stomachache in 1400 suffered from exactly the same kinds of physiological problems that we do today. The experience didn't change. Humans didn't change. What happened was a change in the interpretation of that experience. I think most of us would agree it was a change for the better. And a change for the better for a particular reason. It's not that it's better the way doctors now treat your stomach pain than than in the old days of bloodletting. It's not that, well, bloodletting was really messy and, and barbaric, and so... I prefer modern medicine where I can just take a pill or something and and I don't have to drain my fluids onto the ground. Just tidier. No, it's not a question of preference. It's that bloodletting didn't work and now you could actually be treated for that pain and it could go away. 
In other words, the change in interpretation has brought us closer to reality. And that's why it's good. It's not because it suits our culture better. It's because it's brought us closer into alignment with objective reality. Now, today, there are many subjective human experiences that are interpreted as being normal, natural, good, whatever, even though the Bible says these very same things are not good, but are a consequence of sin. That's the heart of the problem. Autonomy says that no authority can interpret your experience more authoritatively than you can. You tell yourself about yourself is your truth, and no authority can take that away from you. Any authority that challenges that truth shouldn't just be disagreed with, but should probably also be demonized as well, in the same way the Pharisees demonize Christ. Because the question is dire, it goes to the heart of things. Who has the ultimate authority to interpret my experience? If we believe in absolute individualism, then the answer can only be you. Only you can interpret your experience. But the Bible teaches a different answer to that question. It says that God created us, and that everything that God created belongs to him. That there are no uninterpreted facts in the universe or in your life. That everything fits together goes together and means what it means because it's what it means to God. It's how it goes together in the mind of God. There is, in other words, a reality out there that matters. His interpretation, not ours, is authoritative. And the point is, God's interpretation is authoritative because it corresponds to reality because he created reality. Denying God's interpretation, God's instructions, God's word amounts to denying reality, and denying reality has consequences. We sometimes talk about the fruit of the Spirit. We could talk about the fruit of the Spirit of autonomy as well. We could look at ourselves and the culture that we have created and ask ourselves, what fruit does it bear? Paradoxically, the fruit of autonomy has not been happiness. Even though it would seem as if we are closer to living the lives that we desire to live than human beings have ever been before, that we enjoy things that the earlier generations would have thought were unimaginable, that we have freedoms they could not even have dreamt of. When you open the newspaper which is a weird way to say it because nobody does that. When you scroll through the news, isn't it weird how you're not constantly running into stories about how happy everyone is and all of the studies about the unprecedented contentedness of the, the young generation? Like young people these days, because they have everything, feel the need for nothing. All their longings already satisfied. What will they do with their lives except experience bliss? No. It's just the opposite. On the one hand, we have this material reality that seems to suggest we're at the pinnacle of human development. And on the other, everything we tell ourselves about what we're experiencing is that things are going wrong. That this is a crisis. 
that something terrible is taking place, that we are confused and we are depressed, we are hopeless. We are, in Neil Postman's terms, amusing ourselves to death. And yet, ironically, what do we blame all of these fruit on? Not on the culture that has produced them. We blame them on the authority that we threw aside in order to get here. As if the authority that we abandoned is still somehow dogging our steps and doing this to us. And the reality is we have done this to ourselves, the pursuit of toxic freedom. This isn't the world that God wants for you. This isn't the world that God wants for you. This is the world that you are making for yourself. This is the world that inevitably results when we deny and reject reality. This is what rejecting reality looks like and what it feels like. So that's the question that we have to face, this question of authority. Whose authority will we listen to? As we close, I just want to say two things. One thing to those whose trust is in Christ. One thing to those who still struggle to let Jesus interpret reality for us. So for believers, there is an application here that I don't want us to miss. Jesus shows us how to be faithful when his authority is challenged. Right? In our passage, the people who discredit and misinterpret reality in opposition to God are not the poor, they're not the needy, they're not the underclass, right? they're not the people. The ones who are doing this are the ones in power. They are the elites. They are the educated. They are the good. The Pharisees have a lot of power, and they're using that power to state their case against Jesus. You could understand why a lot of powerless people, seeing the Pharisees take that stand, might have felt their enthusiasm for Jesus cool a little bit. But if those people are against him, maybe I shouldn't be for him, or at least maybe I should shut up about it. Don't shut up. The fact of the matter is, the great and the good, the powerful, do feel very much the way the Pharisees felt about Jesus, but that's no excuse not to follow him. Just follow Jesus and follow him in the way that you receive criticism. Right? It's interesting, Matthew doesn't say they compared Jesus and his authority to the prince of demons, and Jesus felt really bad about that. When the Pharisees said this, it really hurt Jesus. And he made a decision that from now on he was going to speak more subtly. Not say stuff that would trigger the Pharisees. Not at all. Jesus didn't keep quiet out of fear of criticism. And neither should you. I mean, if God interprets my experience differently than I do, it might be a benefit for me to know that and for someone to graciously point it out to me. But of course, the key there would be graciously, right? To tell me in a way that I can actually hear. Like, not to confront me with it in a way that's guaranteed to make me dig in and not to listen. That's the key. Never be silent, on the one hand, but always be circumspect. 
We'll see in the next chapter, Matthew 10, Jesus will utter those famous words. He sends out his, his disciples, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That's the way you want to live in a culture where the authority of Christ is challenged. You want to practice that harmless wisdom that testifies to the truth, but does it in love and graciousness. I want to say something to those who struggle with the authority of Jesus. Those who are tempted, like the Pharisees, to dismiss it all. To say, it's not right and it's not good. I mentioned last week that thanks to Lori listening to Tim Keller's Questioning Christianity podcast, I too have been listening to it. And there's another moment I want to share. I'm going to keep sharing them until you just go listen to the podcast. And uh, then I can move on from this. But, but it's an important point and it speaks directly to what we've been talking about here. One of the questions that is posed to Keller after he explains an aspect of, of Scripture and the, the authority, the reliability of Scripture, someone asks him a question, how can I trust in the Bible, basically? And the way he answers it is a little bit surprising, I think. He says, before you confront the question of whether or not you can trust the Bible, you should probably ask yourself what you think about who Jesus is and get that settled first. Because if you accept that Jesus is who he claims to be, then your view of the Bible can just be Jesus' view of the Bible. Right? You can see the authority of Scripture the way that he sees the authority of Scripture. So seeing who Jesus is settles a lot of questions for you, so that's the thing to focus on. Whereas if you reject Jesus, then no secondary logical argument about the reliability of Scripture is going to make any difference. To put it another way, as the great theologian, and I'm saying this purely ironically, I hope you know, a lot of times when I preface, when I say the great theologian, the person I say afterwards will not be a theologian and will not be great. I'm trying to be funny, and it's hard for people to know sometimes when I'm trying to be funny. This, I'm attempting to be funny here. The great theologian Stephen Covey famously taught that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Beautiful. And yet, there is a profundity to it, because we struggle so much to do that. Because we're so tempted to focus on something other than the main thing. To invest our energy and our anxiety and our effort into something that, even if we were to get clarity on it, would not make a fundamental difference. If you're going to keep the main thing the main thing, then you have to keep your eyes focused on Jesus, on who he is, and what you're going to do with Jesus' authority? Is Jesus who the crowds believed him to be? Or is Jesus who the Pharisees believed him to be? Is he the prince of demons? Or he is the king of all creation? That's the thing you have to settle. If there's one thing that the trajectory of our culture teaches us, it's this. If you want to destroy a human being, fulfill his desires. But if there's one thing that I think this passage teaches us, it's this. If you want to restore a human being, you must set his desires on Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.